Our study uh, is back in the book of Philippians, so let's take our Bibles and turn to chapter 3. Last week we were not in our series. Uh, you may remember that two weeks ago we studied what we called the principle of spiritual reciprocity. Uh, spiritual reciprocity is that the work that Christ has done, because He has done this, because He has offered redemption and provided salvation for us, that any disciple of Christ who has given their life to Him and now uh, loves Him and serves Him should place Christ at the highest possible value, which means that whatever is in our past, whatever the world values, whatever self tells us is important, now has to not only become devalued, but become uh, of no value to us. So as Christ is elevated... Everything that our self demands is de-elevated, if that's a word. If it isn't, I just created it, okay? So, so the, the principle of spiritual reciprocity is as he increases, John 3.30 says, I decrease. So this is what we saw in the middle of chapter 3. And we talked about the five things that we crave as human beings. Power, popularity, prestige, possessions, and people. And the problem with each of those is that they demand that our self be fed. And they keep pushing against us and keep demanding that, uh, that Christ, who's elevated here, now be de-elevated and that there be a little bit of balance in our life where self can have a place and Christ can have a place. But the Bible says that's not going to work. Either Christ is preeminent or he's not. So as these five things demand attention and demand uh, for us to take place in them, if we allow that as believers, it hinders us from being like Jesus Christ. So we have to, to treat our old self like a dangerous enemy. We have to treat who we used to be as a former friend who is now bent on destroying us. And we have to make being conformed to Christ, being like Christ, following his example, living in holiness, being set apart, all the things that we know about being like Christ. That has to be our absolute priority, where, where literally nothing happens in our life that isn't aligned with conformity to Christ. Now, when we do this, and this is what, uh, why I love this last song, when we do this, our old self loses its power. And our old self loves power. Our old self loves control. It loves to be in charge. But, but the power that God has given to us through His Holy Spirit, the power that God's given us through redemption, now eliminates that former power. Romans 5 to 8, ladies are studying Romans 8 right now. That it talks all about that, that the old self no longer has control. We're not under bondage to it anymore. It, it doesn't have a place in our lives. It doesn't have any claim on our will. That the old self now is removed. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And now we live in the freedom of, from sin and the freedom from that bondage that God has provided. Now, we know that cognitively, but now it has to carry down into our lives. And when we do that, the old self loses its power and the new self now takes over and spurs us to holiness. But the only way that's going to happen, the only way that we will be in that position, is if we place far greater value on knowing and living for Christ than in continuing to give in to our flesh. In fact, it's not even really a competition. It shouldn't even be a discussion. 
because the old self is so worthless and the new self is so wonderful. Now, that's Paul's message, and we're in, again, Philippians 3. That's his message all throughout this chapter. He draws a really strong contrast between the emptiness and the lack of payoff, if I can use that word, the, the, lack, of, the lack of an end game of living for ourselves and finding confidence in ourselves. He says, when I look at that, even with all I've done in my life, that, that's completely worthless. And now I compare it to, to being able to know Christ. I compare it to being able to live in Christ and having the righteousness of God in me, having the power of God in me, having the benefit that God shows me of being his child. He says it's not even, not even a contest. So now I have to focus my heart and my attention and my mind on that. See, everything comes back to our mindset. Everything comes back to what's going on in our head. And what we decide is most important to us because we're in a constant battle. We're in a constant competition. And when we read through Philippians, and we've only gotten about two-thirds of the way through, but in every chapter of the book of Philippians, Paul talks about our mind. He talks about our attitude. He talks about what's going in up here and what we're thinking and how we're adapting and how we're focusing on the right things. So if you look back at it, chapter 1, verses 23 and 27, he talks about our mind and our attitude. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, he talks about the attitude that we're supposed to have, the attitude that was in Christ. Chapter 3, verses 4 to 8, and verse 15, he talks about mindset that we should have. And in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, one of my favorite passages, he talks about what we should be thinking about. Everything comes back to here. Everything comes back to what we take in, which is why the age we live in, while it's wonderful because there's so much information at our fingertips, literally, it's, it's a dangerous time because the pollution of information now corrupts our mind and we become less discerning and less discriminating about what we allow into our mind. And sometimes we can't even help it because it just goes right there. That's why Jesus says, set your mind on the things that are where? Tell me. Oh, that was slow. Set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things of earth. We need to study harder. Set your mind on the things that are above. In Romans 12, Paul challenges us and he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing or renovation of your mind, which means that it's an intentional choice, listen now, to clean house, to get rid of all the junk, to get rid of all what's old and what's nasty, to have a, if you can use the term, a spiritual garage sale that gets rid of all the junk so the new can come in. So we've got to clean house. We've got to have minds that are transformed, renovated, cleaned out, uncluttered, not stuck with all the junk of our old life. He says we've got to get rid of it, and we've got to want this. This is not just a side option. This is not just something that, that we do when we need our conscience relieved. Okay, well, I'll kind of get back to the Lord. Or when we need something from the Lord, well, I'm going to have to pray about that, and I need God's help, so I better get my heart right and better spend some time in repentance so I can come to the throne of grace. That's not how it works. Our minds should constantly be clean. Our hearts should constantly be clean. And that should be the only way we can see to live. It's the only logical choice. It's the only desirable choice. It's the only choice 
as we've studied in this book, and I'll see you again in a couple weeks, it's the only choice that brings any joy and contentment. The battle this morning in your life is for your mind. It's always been for our mind. It's why the enemy goes to Eve and twists the word of God and isolates her and tries to get her to betray her husband and get her to betray her Lord and why he tinkers with her thinking. It's why the Greeks said that knowledge is the end-all, be-all. It's the ultimate thing that you can attain. Gnosis, the knowledge of knowledge. It's why the Enlightenment had at its core emphasis that logic and freedom of thought are far more important than faith. And it's why I believe what's going on in our culture right now is far more dangerous than any other time in human history. Let me tell you why. Because the new push, and it's an aggressive push, and it's finding incredible traction. The new push is for the re-education of thought. It's the movement away from what's traditional, away from what's logical, and most important, away from what's biblical, to what is more permissive, what is more tolerant, and what is more self-centered because it's based on subjective thought rather than truth. And I want to tell you, I have been amazed how fast this has taken hold and how widespread it is. I think more widespread than I ever could have imagined. And what's most disturbing about it is that at the same time that Christians are being labeled as intolerant and repressive and closed-minded and needing to be kind of quieted and even legislated against, at the same time that's happening, the fastest growing religion in the world in terms of influence is one that is so intolerant that if you disagree with it, they'll kill you. That is allowed, that's embraced, that's even being pushed, but, but when you stand for the Lord, when you stand for the word of God, that's, that's ridiculous, that's intolerant, we can't have that. And what's ironic about it is that not for one second does the world see the hypocrisy of that. So we're watching this going on, and we're looking at it saying, well, how do we offset that? Well, the best way that we can offset that is, our, is in our own personal lives first, because the enemy is having a fertile ground to deceive mankind and to ingest into people's mind this thought of, of uh, getting rid of truth and getting rid of, of the thoughts that we're studying here in chapter 3. And it's very, very pervasive at this point. That's why Paul says, have this attitude, have this mind that was in you in Christ Jesus. The humility and the self-sacrifice and the yieldedness as a bondservant, that's the example of how to live. Because the mind's a tricky thing. The mind is a tricky thing. Because even when something is most logical and even when something gives us the most security and even when something brings the most joy, we still need convincing. Not only do we need additional proof uh, that it's right, but we also need motivation to do it. Now let me give an example of this, and I hope it's a good example. We know that if we eat right and we exercise, that not only will we be in better shape, but we'll feel better and we'll reduce our risk of health problems. Now, that's been the message for decades, and all kinds of every fad diet has come along, uh, going back to the 70s, how many remember the Scarsdale diet? 
okay? And, and remember all the, the miracle pills on TV at 3 o'clock in the morning. If you take this pill, you'll lose 30 pounds in 30 days. And they show a guy who's like, you know, out here, and then next to these, like, yeah, look at me. That happened in 30 days. And you're like, yeah, that's not possible. And there's Jenny Craig, and there's, there's tell me the other ones, Weight Watchers, and there's, there's everything else, right? All, all, these, all these things that are telling us that, that it's not really about diet and exercise. They kind of throw that as a little line at the bottom of the screen. This should be followed with a good diet and exercise program. And it said, like, you know, triple speed. But it's an industry. And if we just did these two simple things, and listen, I'm talking to myself this morning because I got Carrie convicted about this last night. If we just did these two things, a healthy diet and exercise, we'd be stronger and happier, and there would be a lot of good residual effects. There would be reduced medical costs. There would be better productivity. The economy would actually be stronger if we did those two things. But whether it's laziness or skepticism or, or, or both, we apparently need more convincing because the diet industry in the United States is worth, are you ready, $61 billion. $189.10 a person. I did the math. Not in my head. I used the calculator. $189 a year is spent per person on the diet industry. Worldwide, I, I was stunned by this, it's $586 billion. That's greater than the gross domestic product of Sweden. It's twice the gross domestic product of the nation of Israel. All because we don't want to believe that diet and exercise is the best way to live. Now, those numbers to me are staggering. I don't know how you feel about them, but I'm telling you, I'm staggered by it. And now it's to an even greater extreme spiritually in terms of the lack of logic and the lack of motivation. Because when you look at the text, we're told and have proof that Jesus Christ, that, that, that God loves us so much that he sent Christ to die in our place. God loves us so much that he sent Christ to defeat sin. That, that we have grace through the resurrection, that he's willing to completely forgive us, he's willing to erase our sin and eliminate the curse, he's willing to transform our spirit, he's willing to declare us his own, he's willing to promise us eternal life, he's willing to fill us with his spirit, he gives us his full instruction, he gives us a spiritual family, he guides us and leads us and helps us and protects us, and he secures us forever. We've got all that truth and we've got proof of it, and yet billions of people every day absolutely reject it. And those of us who have received his grace still have to be convinced. We still have to be given extra help and extra proof not to run back to our old life, not to love the world, but to live for the one who saves us. There's an incredible body of evidence, an incredible affirmation from the Word, an incredible affirmation from the Holy Spirit that look at what God's done, now live for Him. And we're still kind of going, I don't know, can you give me more proof? Can you give me more help? I don't know, I still kind of like who I used to be. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make sense to me. We've quoted 2 Peter 1.3 a hundred times. I'm going to quote it 101. By his divine power, he has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. But somehow we still need to be convinced because our minds still aren't fully surrendered to him 
and our bodies aren't fully living the, uh, becoming the living sacrifice we're supposed to be. How do we get there? What, what's going to stir us? What's going to get us to, to get this? What's going to help us to live like Christ? Because it's not just about us living for Christ. We have a responsibility as those who are redeemed to have a tremendous influence on a culture that is increasingly buying into the lies of the enemy. And the text highlights three ways to do this. I want to encourage you to write some things down this morning. Let's, let's interact with the text. Okay, there are three main principles. What we need to forget, what we need to reach for, and what we'll receive. Okay, real simple outline this morning. What we need to forget, what we need to reach for, and what we're going to receive. Let's read the text. Five verses. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already attained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. There's the mind again. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will revere that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard of which we've attained. Now, Paul begins this section, verse 11, uh, by, by, excuse me, by concluding the thought of verse 11. And he's saying that while believers have been positionally sanctified, while we've been positionally for all eternity declared righteous by God through the resurrection of Christ, through the victory of Christ, we still haven't attained, while we're on earth, the full measure. We still haven't, haven't come to the place of perfection on earth. We've experienced the power of His resurrection, but we're not living completely in the power of His, res- his resurrection. We're made like Christ, but we're not yet fully conformed to Christ. In other words, I'm going to break it to you, we're not perfect. I know, you're stunned, right? We're not perfect. We've been declared perfect. We've been declared righteous. We are positionally set up forever that God says, you're my own. There's no memory of your sins anymore. They're all erased. They're all gone far as east is from west. There's, there's no record of it. But, but while you're still on earth, you're not there yet. You haven't realized that in your practical life. So Paul says here in the text that the primary goal of anyone who has experienced redemption and experience righteousness, is now to lay hold of what Christ has established in our lives. Now, what does that mean? The Greek word there means to seize and take possession. So, in other words, just as God has grabbed ownership of our lives, just as we've been bought with the price of His blood, and and taken away from sin, and taken away from death, and He now claims ownership, we bear His name, Christian, we now are children of God. Just as God's taken ownership of us, now Paul says we now have to take ownership of what he's taken ownership of. In other words, we have to take the responsibility now to to grasp onto what God has done. 
And Paul himself is aware of the fact that he hasn't laid hold of it yet, even though earlier in the chapter he listed his impressive spiritual resume. Look at all the things I did. Look at all the things I was. But I've realized they were all rubbish. They were nothing compared to knowing Christ. Now he's saying, while you can't perfectly conform to Christ when you get to heaven, uh, until we get to heaven, that's not a reason to shirk the calling now. It's not to say, well, Paul, you just said I'm imperfect. You said I can't become perfect till I get to heaven, so I'm doing my best, but why try? No, that's the wrong thought. This is not a time to shirk our calling. This is a time to to have a greater motivation to move toward the calling. And Paul outlines here how to do that. Three ways, forgetting what's behind, reaching forward to what's ahead, and pressing on to the upper call of God in Christ. Now let's just take a couple minutes in each one. I don't want to preach long this morning. First he says in verse 14, we have to forget what lies behind. Number one, forget what lies behind. He's not really talking about bad experiences. He's not talking about bad relationships. He's not talking about things in our life that were traumatic or or things that that we need to forgive. Those are certainly part of the equation. But there is a spiritual principle here about our past spiritual life. This is not just, well, I've got heartache in in my past and I need to forget that. Yes, there are other passages of Scripture that talk about this, but this is not the one that's talking about that. He's saying forget what is in the past. Forget what lies behind. Forget your old life. And it's interesting that the word forget there not only means to stop remembering it, that the other meaning of the word is to neglect and no longer care for. In other words, it's not just, well, I used to be a sinner and I'm not anymore, so I'm going to kind of forget that. He says in order to move past that so we can move forward, we have to now neglect and not care for that past. We have to show disdain for it. We have to show disregard for it. We have to move away from a self-oriented way of thinking. We have to starve it. We have to malnourish it. We need to not give it any room to breathe because if we do, it'll grow back. Sin is a disease. Sin is an infection that will return quickly and threaten to dominate us if we give it any room to do so. That's why the Bible says, don't give any place to the devil. Don't give him an inch. Don't give him an excuse. Don't give him space. Don't give him a moment of your time. Don't give him an ounce of your heart and mind because if you do, he will eagerly exploit it. So that past life of sin where our desires were instructive, destructive and our, and our heart and mind were influenced by people who didn't love us and things that damaged us, you know what we need to do? We need to forget about it. We need to neglect it. We need to get away from it. It's the only way it's going to change because it's all temporary and it's all a sham. And tomorrow, the promises, that it, the, the, the problems that it promises to relieve today, they'll be back because only the Lord Jesus Christ can free you from those problems. Nothing else in the world can free us from the problems of our life other than Christ. And if we look for anything else, we are going to come up empty every single time. And if we're remembering 
that pain and that heartache, and we're saying, well, I kind of miss it, and there's, there's something about it that's nostalgic. No, listen, turn it and start remembering the joy of God's deliverance and the power of his forgiveness and the sufficiency of his, of his provision because God is faithful. So number one, I hope you wrote it down, forget what's behind. Number two, reach forward to what lies ahead. Now again, this is a spiritual principle. This is not about hopes and plans. It's not about what we, what we think is going to happen, even though the Lord will lead us in those. This is spiritual. This is about reaching forward to the perfection that will be ours in heaven. So as those who have been redeemed and transformed and have the Spirit of God, for those that love the Lord, now our only desire, listen, our only desire should be to live for Jesus Christ in every single way. And we should be constantly striving toward that goal to please the Lord. Because think about what lies ahead. I, I, I can't even grasp it. My mind is so finite. But think about what lies ahead for those whose lives are surrendered to Christ. Standing in the awesome presence of the Lord surrounded by people whose lives have been redeemed in a pure and holy environment where there's unbroken fellowship, where there's the presence of the Lord constantly, where there is an overwhelming and pure sense of grace and mercy, where we have the full understanding of the exoneration of sin, where there's unbridled, unexplainable, just, just joy and peace beyond what we could ever possibly hope for and as we stand there in heaven with Christ and with the rest of the redeemed we will have the understanding that we are completely secure in that forever I can't even grasp it it's it's like a picture in my head that that I can't quite understand but but then then there's more then there's more beyond that because there's a final peace that, that I hope will blow us away this morning. It's the fact that the Lord chooses to pour out blessings on us. He's the one who's responsible for the sanctification. He's the one who's responsible for the adoption. And, and that should be enough. I mean, that's so beyond our comprehension. Anyway, that should be enough. But how many know that the Lord's a gracious God and he goes farther? He goes farther than that. He does all this out of his love and mercy and we're standing there in heaven and we're like, I can't believe I get to be here. This is all because of Jesus Christ. And then God says, I've got some crowns to give out. You who have loved me, you who have trusted me, I, I have some crowns to give to you. And we're like, wait a minute. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I, what crowns are you talking about? I don't deserve any crowns. I, I'm blessed to be here. And God says, no, I have crowns for you. Listen to the five crowns that he's got. He's got the incorruptible crown, 1 Corinthians 9.24. The incorruptible crown is given to every believer who faithfully runs the race, crucifying the flesh and following Christ's example. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, it says there's the crown of rejoicing that's given to those who share the gospel and lead people to trust in Christ as their Savior. Then there's the crown of life in James 1.12 that's given to disciples who endure trials and suffering. 
There's the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8, which is given to those who look for his return and prepare for his return by living holy, set-apart lives. And then 1 Peter 5.1 says there's the crown of glory that's given to those who faithfully and carefully teach the word of God, Sunday school teachers and missionaries and pastors. And, 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 and if that wasn't enough to be there, to be forgiven, to be sanctified, to... to, to to be adopted as his own, and then he starts dispensing crowns, and then he says, not only am I willing to give you all of that, but there's also the potential of the sweetest words that anyone can hear, where Jesus says to those who love him, well done. You've been a good and a faithful servant. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't think we need more motivation than that. That's a powerful motivation for Paul. It's a powerful motivation here in the text for anybody that loves the Lord. And it's the impetus to do all the things that he's already described up until this point. At the risk of giving you too many lists, let me go through this because I was blown away. As I started to study the Bible, and, and you guys know you've done inductive study one of the great ways to study the Bible is just to go through and, and look at all the instructions. What are all the instructions? What are all the active verbs? If we can be English students for a minute. What are all the active verbs? What are all the things that we're told to do? What are all the things that are going to result from living for Christ? Because Philippians is full of them. I'm going to, and I hope I, I remember to do this, I want to make a card when we're done, the end of this study, that we can put on our fridge or put on our, on our, our dresser or on our mirror or whatever, that, that lists all the different things that, that we're told to do in Philippians that are wonderful. Let's just go back through. Just, just glance through. You may not find the verse. I don't have the verse for you because I don't want to take long on this. But just look at all the things starting in verse 1 that we're told to do. We're told to have abounding love to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, to exalt Christ in our bodies, to love, to live as Christ, to conduct ourselves into chapter 1 with a, in a way that's worthy of Christ, to serve together in one mind, to do nothing out of selfishness but of, of a humble mind, to have the same attitude, chapter 2, that Christ had, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to prove ourselves blameless, to hold fast the word of life, to pour ourselves out as a drink offering, to serve to further the gospel, to be careful to guard against those going into the end of chapter 2 who oppose God. Chapter 3, have no confidence in the flesh. Count all things as lost compared to knowing Christ. Be conformed to his death. This is just list after list after list, item after item, where God says, here's the practical application of loving me. Here's what it's going to look like. And it's so rich and so wonderful. And if we will walk through just this, just this text and say, here's what God calls me to do. Here's what God calls me to do. What's my motivation, Paul? Come on, I have a busy life. Yeah, but you know what? We're going to stand in heaven and God's going to start pouring out crowns on us. And he's going to look at us and say, did you love me? Did you serve me? Were you set apart for me? Did you abound in love? Did you exalt me in everything? Did you serve with humility of mind? Did you hold fast the word? Did you see your life as a drink offering? Were you a bond servant? We have to reach forward to what lies ahead. And then third, he says in light of all this that's going to be finalized in heaven, 
Our passionate goal now, verse 14, should be to press on toward this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love the word call here because the word call here in the original language means an invitation to a vocation. Being a Christian isn't just receiving the grace of God at the expense of Christ's sacrifice and then meeting the minimum standards to kind of show that we're appreciative. I really need a, we really need, not I need you to listen. We need, I need to listen to the Holy Spirit right now. Being a believer, being a disciple is not just, well, I got saved and I'm kind of doing my best. There is not a single verse in Scripture that would teach that. Being saved and being a disciple and being a follower of Christ is an invitation to a vocation to move toward the upward call of God in Christ. That is the only choice. We have been given an indescribable gift. We've been given the higher calling of heaven. And our enemy is battling us every step of the way. And it's going to get worse. He wants to destroy our faith. He wants to devalue our holiness. He wants to damage our witness. And he wants to utterly devastate Christianity. That's why this calling and this prize before us is one we have to fight to defend. And we have to run hard after it. And we have to wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers of darkness that want to damage us forever. Paul says, I love the image, press on. When I read that, I think of a runner. Believe it or not, I used to run in college. I used to be in really good shape. I was looking at my old college yearbooks last night, and I got so depressed. Like, man, I thought I was fat back then. Good gravy. I was thin. But last part of my college life, I really got into running. I messed up my knee in summer of 86, and, and that kind of was, was the end of it. I miss it so much. And even though running can kind of be monotonous, there's nothing like starting out with a goal in mind. There's nothing like having a finish line out there, even if it's just imaginary, that, that stands as a place of accomplishment and a place of victory. Even if you're not running with anybody else, even if you're doing what I used to do, which is run on the streets at about 11 o'clock at night. I ran at night because I lived in Charlotte, and it was so hot and so humid, and I don't like hot and humid. So I'd wait till best possible time, and I got there, and there was a road I would always run, Fairview Road, Julie knows it, Fairview Road, and I'd always start at the, I'd park at the Burger King there, and I would run this road, and Fairview Road is such that, that it starts kind of up on a hill, and then it goes way down, I mean, very steep, down into a valley, and then it comes back up another hill, so I'd run all the way down, down in the valley, and I'm sweating and, and just, you know, gross. And then I go up to the end of the other hill. And now I'm a long way from my destination. So I'd turn around and I'd run back. Now, when I got to, to the first stop, there was a real, real strong incentive to go back because there was nobody there to pick me up. And it's like 1130 at night now. And, and I'm a long way from my car. And at this point, if I walk, it's going to take a long time. So I would turn around, and it always felt kind of good to make that turn and to start to go back. 
and I would run and run, and then I'd go back up that last hill, and, and I'd push even harder because I knew that when I got to the top of that last hill, my car was there, and in my car was wonderful, lovely air conditioning. I love air conditioning. I especially love air conditioning when I've been running for 45 minutes in 85-degree heat with 100% humidity. So there was always a motivation. Now, I was never an outstanding runner, not by any stretch. I'm, I'm certainly nothing like those athletes that run marathons or run marathons in two hours and change. I don't, I don't understand that. That's just weird. But I ran enough to know that there are certain qualities of a runner. And I want to bring this in, and we're done. I want to bring this in spiritually to this text where he says, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. There are certain qualities of a runner physically that also are the qualities of a runner spiritually. A runner trains diligently. They deny themselves what will hinder them from being strong and ready to race. Every time I ran back to my car, guess what I saw? Burger King. And you know what Burger King means? Burger King means fries. And you know what fries are? Fries are wonderful. They are wonderful. They are a gift from God. I love French fries. But I'm just... I'm just running for 45 minutes and I'm sweating like a dog and I'm tired and I'm pushing up the last hill and I intentionally parked my car at Burger King because I said to myself, that's counterproductive to what I'm doing right now. So the last thing I'm going to do after running for 45 minutes is to pull up my wallet and walk into Burger King and say a large fries, please. Right? A runner trains diligently a runner denies self so they'll be ready to race. Second, a runner keeps a steady pace. They're not distracted. They're not easily discouraged. They don't fluctuate in their speed and their progress because that reduces effectiveness. They just keep going forward. And as they go forward, third, a runner never looks back with resentment at where they've been and they never regret that the finish line is still far ahead. That is the point of focus. That's what they're concentrating on. That's the end goal. Spiritually, he says, press on for what? The end goal, the prize of being like Christ. So keep running forward. And a runner never lets up. They run all the way to the tape. They move forward with just as much, and I would suggest greater urgency as they reach the end. Let me give you an example of this that happened about a month ago. Paul, can you run that video? Take my word for it. There's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanche Pepio. He's getting the crowd. He wants the crowd to cheer his performance. And at the end, he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can. And you know, you see his face. And you know, no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. See, he, he started celebrating before he got to the end. He let up. Paul, even at the end of his life, this is one of the last books that he ever wrote as he's sitting in jail in Rome. He could say, guys, it's time to ease up. Man, I've lived a hard life. I've worked hard for the Lord. I've been faithful. I've written all kinds of letters that are going to become scripture. And I've persevered and I've led 
thousands to Christ. You know what? I'm going to sit back for a little bit. He says, press on. Keep going forward. Don't do what that guy did. Don't ease up and start saying, look at me, look at me. He says, keep running forward. As I got to the end, even though I was tired, I always ran my hardest because I knew that my car was the finish line. My car was the reward. When I got there, I was done. Jesus says to us as disciples, great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward. When we get to heaven, we'll have time to celebrate what God's done through us. But now he says, forget what's behind. Reach forward to what's ahead and press on forward toward the goal, which is the prize of the upper calling of God in Christ Jesus. This is our calling. This is our goal. And you know what's wonderful? God fully equips us and empowers us to run that race. When a runner is training for a marathon, I've never done it, but this is what I've heard. They aren't supposed to run the whole distance constantly when they're training. They run significant portions of the distance, but they don't run all of it. And the Lord reminded me of that this week because it's a spiritual analogy. God doesn't call us to accomplish everything he wants to do in our lives at once. He calls us to be faithful and steady and focused and to persevere in the race he has for us right now. Sometimes there are hills, sometimes there are valleys, and we may be struggling to keep going, and we're breathing hard, and we're wondering if we can make it. Some people say, and I, love, I hear this phrase all the time, well, the Lord never gives you more than you can handle. You know what? That's not true. Many times the Lord gives you more than you can handle on your own and on your own sufficiency. Why does he do that? He does that so we'll learn to call on him and depend on him and say, Lord, I need your help. And God says, when you do that, I'm right there. God does give us more than we can handle to prove our insufficiency. And what we learn when the hill is long and steep is that righteousness and strength are found not in us, they're found in Him. And when we trust in Him and rely on Him, He will be faithful. When the road's easy and it's flat and you're strong and it's not humid, it's easy to coast. It's easy to do what that runner did in that video. Just kind of jog along and I'm good and everything. No, Paul says, even when it's easy, press on. Run hard. Live for the Lord. Whatever road the Lord has you on right now, whatever he's calling you to do, press on. Be like Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Conform to Christ. Make Christ known. As we said at the very start of the service, it is all about Christ. Living for him.